Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 105. Well, I don't know about where you are in the world, but where I am, spring has finally arrived. It's sunny, it's warm, and, of course, I have caught myself a stonking great cold. All I can do is ask for your patience as I wheeze and croak my way through this week's show. We do have two great servings of dark fantasy for you this week to make up for it. We start with Wednesday's Child by John Michael Kelly. John resides in a gold mining town in the mountains of Colorado where he does his writing. His stories have appeared in the anthologies Qualia Nu and Shir Al-Mad 1 and 2 by Written Backwards Press, Sensorama by Ebenvale Press, Trigger Warning, short stories with pictures, edited by Neil Gaiman, and Triangulation, Lost Voices, by Parsec, Inc. John's dark fairy tale is read for us by Tatiana Gomberg, a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen, and the audio booth. Tatiana has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing as yet. She lives in New York City, and you can learn more about her at tatiagomberg.com. And now, Wednesday's Child by John Michael Kelly. Good morning, Miss M. The voice, lecherous as a dank cellar draft, seemed to travel low to the ground as if slithering out from beneath a rock. She instantly froze the spoon halfway to her mouth. She'd heard that voice once before, here, on this very same glade, and knew that it originated from a primal and universally shared nightmare. Her skin, pupils, every follicle of hair reacted protectively as icy adrenaline surged to oil her limbs. She dared not turn around, as she knew with all certainty that what had crept upon her was a lethal, liquid-black grotesquerie unparalleled in her world. Highly venomous, but not a snake. 
not any reptile. Sorry to interrupt your breakfast, said the spider, but I've again intentions to make you my own. Greta Muffet turned the handle and unleashed the flatulence of ancient plumbing. The sink and surrounding counter bucked and hiccuped as the spigot coughed up air and spittle like an emphysemic, before finally releasing a meager stream of rust-tinted water. Eventually, colors and pressures equalized, but not without some grumblings. Much like the inner pipes of an old man, she thought, although it was an old woman for whom she made this thrice-weekly trip, her dedication to the tired, to the infirm, or to be quite accurate, the convalescent. She placed the kettle beneath the flow and waited patiently. It was tea time, a particularly endearing staple of her country, just as was the morality angle, although she normally didn't have her tea until five, when she preferred fancier flavors from the Darjeeling regions over those with names of once popular prime ministers. But Lilith Dodd was an old woman and was stubbornly fond of her Earl Grey at noon. Fond the same way she once was of her many children, all grown and long gone now. Gone for good, the grudges of incessant whippings and diets of thin broth keeping them away. As mentioned, Lilith Dodd is an old woman, and now lives a mostly solitary life, one grown sedentary inside a largely dilapidated, laceless shoe, held together only by prayer and, of course, the cobbler's annual stitching efforts. It stunk vaguely of mink oil and spilt wine, and its many curtains, when sent fluttering in distant rooms, suggested a lively haunting by a troop of barefoot children. Greta winced. Through the kitchen window, the late afternoon sun was at just the right angle to be making an effervescent spectacle of the old woman's porcelain egg collection from the adjacent dining room. All examples were neatly arranged upon tiny stands behind the curved glass of an old oak hutch. Some bore intricate carvings, some were gilded, others hinged and painted with opulent designs. Greta took almost as much pleasure in them as did Lilith, the faux Fabergé ones especially. Greta Muffet lifted the kettle from the sink and onto an adjacent gas burner, one of three belonging to a necessarily thin, though freestanding porcelain stove of a previous century's design. A pinch of orange rind, a teaspoon of honey, Lilith mulishly reminded her from her rocker, creaking away. Then a quick stir or two to keep the color sunny. Greta smiled, just a little. I've not forgotten, Aunt Lily. Not a true aunt, but... After so long, it got to feeling that way, so certain affectations found purchase and stuck. And I should think a halfpenny roll would be in proper order, dear. No rolls, I'm afraid, nor crumpets, Greta said. But I can have you a vanilla scone in a jiff. Warmed with clotted cream, then. Of course. She adjusted the flame, then her shawl, always a nagging draft here in the shoe and stared out the window above the sink, 
beyond the tilted plane of a flower planter and the golden heads of its drooping mums, beyond the bleached designs and leaking limbs of long-discarded toys, and into a starkness that, daytime or night, always seemed to saturate in any direction the unenthusiastic distance of her sight. She brought her focus back in, back to the four partitioned panes. Spring, summer, fall, and winter, she mused, and found that they were edged with grime and mildew, so much like the cataracts of regret that have built upon the periphery of her own seasons, upon the lens of her reminiscence. She reached out and lightly fingered the hazing, her first impression to liken it to a thin layer of webbing, of spun silk, but she quickly jerked away from that comparison despite its aptness. Not to do so was to invite a profound, depressive mood. Or, to be quite accurate, agitate an already existing one. She sighed. Wednesday's child is full of woe. Lilith did the best she could to stretch out her left leg, giving acute consideration to the seeping bandages thick around her calf. Dr. Salinas mentioned that the wound's healing nicely, she said. And the scarring should be minimal, but a dent it will undoubtedly leave. Creak, creak, creak. Just an awful bite. What was it he called it? Necrotic something. Necrotic arachnidism, Greta said, specific with the consonants. Yes, yes, a most defiling tongue twister. Lilith shivered. The punctures are abhorrent, the smell growing sour. One can't possibly take a long enough shower. Greta agreed, having once experienced the leprous feelings that were the after-effect of her own encounter. The second one. And although she'd not been bitten, as had Lilith, she often wished otherwise. By the way, how were you doing with the antibiotics? She asked. They still making you nauseous. I'm making sure to take them with bread and dairy, Lilith said. Oh, did I tell you that the president of the Homeowners Association came by yesterday? Apparently, he wants me to speak at the next meeting. As ruthless crimes go, mine has been considered brutal enough to hopefully inspire a majority vote on the implementation of a neighbourhood watch programme. Creak, creak, creak. I'm thinking of showing, but I've no way of going. Still staring vacantly at the window, Greta said, I'll be happy to take you, just give me some notice. Then notice you shall have. Next Tuesday at 8 p.m. sharp, we Willy Winkie's place. Greta simply nodded, then opened a faded tin and began spooning its dark contents into a tea ball. The creaking chair stopped. You seem especially distant today, dear, Lilith observed. To mention Wee Willie reminds me that you both wear enduring garments. His made of night clothes, yours of melancholy. The chair started up again. What has you so occupied? Greta finally turned, her fingers fumbling at the embroidered fringe of her apron. 
it's just... It's just we almost lost you. If I had acted responsibly, unselfishly, those many years ago, well, I like to think that the vicious assault upon you would never have happened, as the spider would still be incarcerated, perhaps even dead by now, a victim of his own irony, with the isolation having ultimately left him a dry, hollow shell. The kettle began to whistle. Greta snatched it and immediately poured the boiling water into a cup for such intentions. Beneath was a matching saucer, both designs of twisting vines. "'You did what you had to, dear,' Lilith said. "'No one knows how they will act when confronted with the spider.' "'It's because no one's lived to tell after being bitten,' Greta said, fondly steeping the tea ball. "'Except you.' Lilith shrugged diffidently. "'What's most important is that you forgive yourself. "'It's been too many years to carry that guilt.' "'As if there should be a statue of limitations for that kind of remorse,' Greta thought. "'A black keratin dagger caressed her cheek. "'Sweet, sweet Miss M.' Soon we shall see. His breath was fusty, slightly fetid, and she turned away. There she beheld the bulbous abdomen as it moved in liquid, vulgar ways. Two black spinnerets groped the air like the fleshy stubs of an amputee. Then a fine spray of silk lighted upon her shoes. "'Just in case you were to find your heels again,' said the spider. Greta pinched her eyes closed and begged wetly from a trembling lip. She said that there were things she wished to live for, that youth had all but abandoned her, this was true, but life still maintained a certain preciousness and was not desired to be lost just yet. Not like this. "'Dear sir, please, not like this.' Perhaps an exchange, then, offered the spider. An exchange. Another black appendage wrapped around her waist and pulled her closer, her tuffet no longer holding her weight. A covenant, if you will. A solemn agreement just between us. Her knees gave out yet she still remained upright in the spider's hydraulic grasp. She was still in possession of her bowl, though it was sloping now, her curds and whey slipping out, warm on her fingers as were the tears upon her cheeks. The three little kittens, all plump with pie, whispered the spider. Tell me their whereabouts, and when their mother is indisposed... And I shall leave you to only the silk around your ankles. If not, then I will leave your desiccated remains to the discretion of the wind. Greta sighed. I didn't make a clean getaway, she reminded. For my own freedom, I told him when and where the three kittens could be found unprotected. I practically drew my map. Yes, it was you or the fur balls, she agreed. Difficult choices, but it's not like you betrayed your own kind. 
You followed a hierarchy. You know your link in the food chain. Nothing to be ashamed of. Besides, if it had been me, I would have sold out little Tom Tinker's dog. Keeps crepping in my begonias. She cackled at this, then resumed with a shake of her finger. You can bet your peers porridge that had the rules been reversed, and those kittens had had larger brains and opposable thumbs, then you'd have been offered up just as effortlessly had directions to your own whereabouts been solicited. Just as effortlessly, aghast, Greta said. I assure you that my decision was not without a fair amount of angst, and if I may remind you, the mother had to be put down. The grief having left her without a proper mind. I didn't mean to minimize the consequences, dear. Just illuminate the obvious. Greta shook her head. Why I couldn't muster the nerve to run the second time? Your decision not to will haunt you till the end, Lilith guaranteed her. Then, with less fuss than one might have expected, she stood wavering ever so slightly. She cinched her frazzled terry robe and said, "Let's forget the scone. I'll take my tea in the living room." On the couch, then, Greta said after her, "I'll fix you up with some fresh dressings and iodine." Lilith ignored the couch and sought the comfort of another chair, this one encompassing with frayed wingbacks of a paisley design and a welcomingly plush cushion, while its still lissom mechanics produced a silent rocking. A sewing basket sat just to its left, which she regarded approvingly. Moments later, the china clinked deliciously as Greta handed her the tea. "Be careful not to burn yourself," she said, then disappeared toward the back of the shoe in search of clean gauze and tinctured antiseptics, and perhaps a moment of peace. Lilith blew little puffs into the cup, savoring the heady aroma. Against the west wall stood a grandfather clock. Its hickory surface striated with the worn, tiny paths of a sharp-nailed rodent. Below, in no particular order about the floor, sat a dozen mouse traps baited with morsels of cheddar. None of them was sprung. She glanced expectantly at the clock's face, painted with a rather unsettling depiction of a cow in some kind of lunar orbit. The hands were about to strike the hour. It was nearly time. Suddenly reminded of something, Lilith straightened out her better leg and pushed herself up and out of the chair. Then quickly hobbled to the oak hutch, ensconcing her cherished porcelain egg collection. She opened the cabinet and quickly gathered up her treasures into a receiving pouch she'd made from a slip of her robe. Then shuffled over to a distant cedar trunk, which she opened and therein delicately deposited the items one at a time upon a quilt sewn by a relative long dead and whose name she could no longer remember. Winded somewhat, she limped back to her chair. There, she took a moment to remind herself that with age comes wisdom, and it was an utter fool who did not see the landscape changing. The once heavy and enduring vintage atmosphere of a quaint existence had been sucked out, now replaced by a lighter, crisper, cleaner air, free of those particulates that amounted to so much disingenuousness. Then she disappeared into a dark, recent memory. Pinned to the ground, 
a black dagger securing each splayed arm. Lilith stared defiantly into those eight eyes. Just make it quick, you filthy bugger! A guffaw. You look like something that crawled away from some distant and unforgiving autumn, the spider observed. Something parched and in search of chlorophyll. He tilted in, as if attempting to gain a better focus. Why I even bother? Then why do you? She spat. The spider seemed to suckle upon this bit of insolence. Then he said, Tell me, do you keep that vinegar in a flask and close to your breast? He thought another moment. Yes, he decided as he inched even closer. Perhaps such guile might work to my advantage and well to your salvation. Lilith stared uncertainly, hopefully then, into those black marbles. A favor, I'm guessing. Greta returned from the shadowy recesses of the shoe, her stride somewhat stilted, hesitant, her arms limp at her sides, her possession free of any medicinal supplies. She was staring out from behind a puzzled expression. Lilith looked up from her reverie. Why, dear, you look as if you've just discovered something most perplexing. I... Oh, the back door has been secured from the inside, fortified with... Spun silk. The staircase, too, prohibiting access to the upper chambers. Lilith nodded that she understood, then retrieved her cup and saucer from the tray table alongside. She sipped quietly, reservedly, as if having returned to some kind of relevant contemplation. Now Greta was gaping at the oak hutch, at all of the empty little pedestals within. What? What has happened to your beautiful legs? They were there just moments ago. I had to move them, dear. They're sure to be quite the commotion, and I didn't feel it prudent to leave them in its potential path. Greta was now wringing her hands, her eyes displaying an alarming wideness. A commotion? Of what sort? Lilith didn't answer, just kept sipping. Something large, just then, went skittering by the kitchen window, a sickeningly lurid frolic of branching appendages. Then, at the front door, an urgent tapping. Lilith raised her eyes to the sound. Just one moment, please, she requested of the caller. Fixed in place. Greta was nonetheless searching anxiously for a way out, a window, another door. The bite was really just a teeny nip, Lilith confessed. A warning of what was to come if I didn't hold up my end of the deal, she shrugged. And to facilitate some subterfuge, to be sure. Greta's knees and shoulders were now experiencing an affliction of tremors. You sold me out. To the spider. 
Oh, let's call it what it is, dear. A sacrifice. Just as were those naughty little kittens. I... I don't understand. I've long been your friend. I take care of you. I bathe you. I'm sorry, dear. I really am. But we've been withering on the vine, all of us here. Nobody reads us any more, and those that do don't take us seriously. So it's time to stop the pretenses. She sighed. I've often wondered if perhaps that was the reason for the brevity of our individual stories. Yours, for instance, is but one stanza. I used to think that your tale was simply to illustrate the universal fear of arachnids, and mine the consequences children must face when guilty of bad behaviour. But perhaps the shortness of our stories is evidence only of their lacking, of their incompleteness. Incompleteness? Why, yes, dear. They were left unfinished so that history might eventually shore them up, that their vagueness might finally surrender to those starker inevitabilities that we have for so long only insinuated. She returned her teacup and saucer to the portable stand. Yes, I'm afraid change is in the air. She cackled some more. That is, for everyone except the spider. She shook a crooked finger. He will always have but one role, his lines forever memorized. As a path of wetness blossomed downward upon Greta's pant leg, Lilith reached into the nearby sewing bag and pulled out a pair of darning needles, then a bolt of sienna-colored wool. She began to maneuver her sentences as deftly as she crocheted the yarn. Our dawns were but quaint utterances, but what shimmer upon our sunsets are harsher ramblings, diatribes, I should think, against the insincerities. Amid her own quaking terror, Greta noticed something perhaps even more terrifying than what awaited her on the other side of the door. Your occasional rhyme, it's gone, gone, gone. Lilith shook her head. Haven't you been listening? From now onward, there will be no more rhyming, no more paying allegiance. Our country is dead, so should be its anthem. Greta could only stare. Then... Pitifully remembering her earlier promise, she entreated, But we Willy Winky's place. Her breaths had grown quicker, sharper, her voice now a crackling cellophane version of its former self. How, how we make the meeting? Lilith clucked disapprovingly. My poor, poor dear, not only are you a self-loathing bitch, but you're also not a very bright one she said, punctuating the remarks with an exaggerated crocheted loop. Now the hitches, the threatening sob. He'll do you like he did me, Greta warned, pointing at the door. He's a liar and not to be trusted. I am your proof, this act about to be committed against me, that he will renege on his promise. I know, dear. I know very well. But I'll advance a proposition of my own. I shall offer him the whereabouts of my children. Her lips formed a vile, crooked grin. 
but just one at a time. By portioning them out, I'll be assured of very long reprieve. For as you know, I have so many, many children. Lilith then raised her voice to the door and said finally, Come in! Fairy tales and fables often have a moral, and the moral to this story may very well be, one way or another, no story remains. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Finished. And now from one grim fairy tale to the next, specifically The Right Hand of Decay by David Annandale, who writes Warhammer 40,000 and Horus Heresy Fiction for the Black Library. He is also the author of the horror novel Gethsemane Hall and the thrillers Crown Fire, Comocopia and The Valedictorians. His short fiction has appeared in Keiju Rising, Age of Monsters and Occult Detective Monster Hunter, a grimoire of eldritch inquests. David's non-fiction has appeared in Black Treacle, Roman Catholicism in Fantastic Film, Essays on Belief, Spectacle, Ritual and Imagery and The Meaning and Culture of Grand Theft Auto. He writes film reviews for The Phantom of the Movies Videoscope and teaches film, creative writing and literature at the University of Manitoba. You can find him online via the links in our show notes. The story is read by writer and voice actor Nicole Doolin. Nicole has performed numerous narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as The No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify and, of course, your very own Far-Fetched Fables. She also narrates classic literature by the likes of Austen, Poe, James and more in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. And now we have The Right Hand of Decay by David Annandale. (laughs) 
They were building the mound when she arrived on the battlefield. The corpses were piled higher than the trees that girded the plain below Baragano, but there were many more yet to be gathered. The executions had not started yet. All in good time. It was midday but overcast, clouds hanging low and so dark that they bathed the land in a hard twilight. Smoke rose from campfires and from inside the walls of Baragano. The stench of blood, thick and pungent as grief, rolled in waves over the field. The Grey Queen breathed in the smell and contemplated the growing mound. She must not take the loss for granted. The sacrifices must be noted and given meaning. She was conscious of how rote the ritual was becoming for her. Make note of that, too, she thought. Watch yourself. This should not be easy. And it was not. But perhaps not as hard as it should be. More and more. Not hard enough at all. She had ridden alone to Baragano. Leaving her mount in the forest, she crossed the plain on foot, taking in the measure of the defeat. Most of the corpses in the field had been dragged there before being added to the mound. The deaths had occurred in the near approach to the walls of Baragano. The fortified city sat on a basalt plateau with sheer cliffs to the north, south, and east. Down the steep westward slope, a single road twisted through jagged outcroppings. It was a slow route for any army leaving the city. For an attacking force, it was a death trap. And the only choice. Baragano had never been taken. And the Grey Queen's army had never been defeated. She had not felt the need to take on Lord Herod before. But he had forced her hand by sending large raiding parties over her borders so she had ordered her forces to topple the seat of his power. They had failed, so she had come to do what was necessary. A command tent was set up midway through the field. The mound stood between it and the road to the fortress. The Grey Queen entered. Two of her generals, Temis and Gascon, were waiting for her. They were both wounded. Temis had a head wound. Blood soaked her cloth bandage and streaked down the right side of her face. Gascon's left arm hung limp. The arrow that had pierced it through the elbow had been broken at either end, but not removed. There was no point in doing so. They bowed. She nodded, then said, Tell me. We were defeated by the land, Temis said. It was impossible to move troops up faster than Herod could take them down. Our siege engines were burning before they were a third of the way toward the gate, Gascon added. Was the enemy reinforced? She hadn't seen any of Herod's banners in the field. No, said Temis. The Baragano contingent was more than enough. The Grey Queen sighed. The hope had been to force Herod to recall his divisions, ending his incursions. Most of the raids were occurring within a day's march of here, but they were spread out. She wanted the Lord's army concentrated, arriving in a single force to combat the threat to the seed of power. A single battle would have ended Herod's threat, as bloody as that struggle would have been. 
It would have been preferable to the alternative she now faced. Really? Would you really have preferred not to be involved? The voice, venomous and eager, was her own. Yes, she answered herself. She was unsure if she made the assertion out of desire or an eroding sense of obligation. Then he has left us with little choice, the Grey Queen said. You've arranged a parley? Gascon nodded. We have. He has agreed to meet you at the base of the slope. Good. I will attempt to reason with him. If he fails to listen, we will not fail you, said Temis. I know you won't, she smiled. And you have my thanks for the sacrifice you will make. She heard the solemnity in her tone. That was good. But her smile, had it been mournful? She worried it had been eager. Soon, said the hungry voice. Harrod strode down the final stretch of the road to the base of the plateau. Just past the final bend, his squad of archers stopped and took aim. Beyond where the Grey Queen waited, her own archers were in position. If one ruler was killed, the other would not draw another breath. The precaution was hardly necessary. The Grey Queen's reputation for honor in negotiations was beyond reproach, and Herod had no intention of triumphing through assassination. He evaluated his opponent as he crossed the patch of rocky ground towards her. She wore no armor except for a gauntlet on her right arm. Her robes, true to her name, were gray, but he was surprised to see the material. There was nothing royal about it. The robes were linen, as if she were wearing a shroud. She bore no crown. Instead, her robes had a hood, which she had put back. Her gauntlet, Harrod now saw, had no joints. It appeared to be carved from granite and held together by metal bands. It must have been very heavy and allowed no movement of the fingers. It looked like a brutal sculpture. He had trouble guessing her age. She was older than his forty, of that he was sure. She had been on her throne when he was born, and how long before that he didn't know. Her hair was the color of iron. Her face was lined with experience. But her posture was as straight as his. And when he was close enough to see her eyes, they burned with both the judgment of age and the energy of a young conqueror. Your troops fought well, Harrod began. It was true. This had been the first time he had seen the Grey Queen's army for himself. The ferocity of their siege had surprised him. It confirmed the truth of the reports, coming back from his expeditionary commanders, that victory over the small town garrisons was possible only through overwhelming numbers. The campaign was still in its early days, and the siege of Baragano was the first major encounter between the powers. His victory was decisive. But there had been moments when it had seemed the flood of soldiers streaming up the road would exhaust his arsenal. It had been like attacking the tide. Herod looked at the immense mound of bodies. His gut twisted. 
It was a monstrosity, not a funeral pyre. Soldiers climbed to the top, crushing limbs beneath their feet, hauling more corpses, tossing them to the peak. Most of the dead had been collected now. The troops not involved in the assembly of the mound lined up at its base. They are still fighting, the Grey Queen said. I am here to offer you a last chance to surrender. Harrod choked on his astonishment. He stared at the Grey Queen. He must have misheard. She gazed back, calm. At the mound, executions began. The rank and file walked forward, one at a time, and the commanders ran them through with their swords. New bodies were added to the hill. Harrod blinked. You're demanding I surrender at the same time that you are killing your troops for being defeated? My soldiers are sacrificing themselves to our cause. This is the last and greatest gift they will grant me. And yes, I am demanding your surrender. The day has seen enough horror, don't you think? Your position is absurd. You will soon have no army at all. Another is being raised as we speak. It will push you from our lands. But none of this is necessary if you withdraw. The wind shifted, blowing the smell of the bodies Harrod's way. He grimaced. You are very sure of yourself. I am sure of the loyalty of my people. Are they loyal or afraid? I give them peace and security, the Grey Queen said. That does not answer my... You brought war, she continued, speaking over his objection. You must understand, Lord Harrod. Your ambitions do not concern me. You may do what you like, but not in my lands. You have invaded, and when war comes, we will win no matter what the cost. That is the precondition of our security. Without turning her head, she gestured at the executions. This is part of that cost. Yours will be greater. Harrod shook his head. I believe you're quite mad. It is clear to me that your time has passed. But it does not have to end tonight. This is my counteroffer. Finish your demented ritual and leave. If you or any of your forces are still here by tomorrow dawn, I will attack. Her expression did not change, but the fire in her gaze burned darker. You have a family, I believe. I do, he said, confused. They are here? They are. Then for their sake, I ask you one last time, Lord Harrod, will you surrender? Of course not. I see. She raised her arm as if the stone gauntlet were weightless and pointed the open hand towards the massive walls of Baragano. Then you should return to your city. She paused. Go to your family. The executions lasted until nightfall. By then, the mountain of bodies had doubled in size. 
The Grey Queen stood at its base and acknowledged her soldiers as they bent their knee to her before they were killed. The deaths walked up the ranks until only Themis and Gascon remained. Gascon handed his sword to Themis, bowed to the Grey Queen, and said, I rejoice in the peace that is coming. Thank you, said the Grey Queen. Gascon straightened. Themis plunged the sword into his heart. He fell. Will you ascend with me, your highness? Themis asked as she took the corpse's arms. No, I am sorry, but I must play my part in the labor. Of course. It took close to an hour for Themis to drag Gascon to the peak of the hill and descend once again. Then she stood before the Grey Queen and waited. The Grey Queen looked at Themis's face. Beneath the grime and the blood, it was pale in the torchlight. Are they loyal or afraid? Harrod had asked. Both, was the answer. And did that matter? Did it change anything? Would it stay her hand? No. Do you act from necessity or desire? And again, both. And again, it didn't matter. She drew the dagger from her belt. Like her gauntlet, its blade was fashioned of old iron and older stone. You honor me, Themis said. You deserve no less, said the Grey Queen. And it is you who honors me. All of you do. Themis kept her eyes open. The Grey Queen stepped forward and drew the blade across the general's throat. Themis's blood sprayed over the Grey Queen. It ran down her face, was absorbed by the linen of her robes, and the red vanished into the gray. She caught Themis as she slumped forward. She held the general until the blood stopped flowing. Then, with her left arm, she hoisted the body over her shoulder, sheathed the dagger, and began to climb. Limbs shifted beneath her feet. Dead flesh muffled the crack of bone. Eyes were deep hollows in the dim light, shadows staring into the dark. Her boots slipped on blood-matted hair. In my name, she thought, each death in my name. Not the name she had been born with, though. She had lost it so long ago, she could no longer remember what it had been. Honor the dead. Do what must be done, and then face the consequences of that act. The other voice, the hungry one, was silent for the moment. It had retreated behind a smile now that the moment had almost come. She reached the peak and placed Themis at the top. The Grey Queen stood on a mountain of death. It was soft with flesh and hard with bone. To the west she looked down on the darker patch of the forest. To the east the torches on the ramparts of Baragano were wavering pinpricks. Above was the dark of pure void. She could feel the weight of the clouds. They pressed down, 
massive with the tension of a storm that refused to arrive. The storm would be hers to unleash, and there would be nothing cleansing about it. Still facing Baragano, she crouched. With her left hand, she unfastened the gauntlet, it slid off her arm with a squelch. Below the elbow, her right limb still had the shape of a forearm in hand. It ended in five fingers, but it was a deeper gray than her robes. It was mottled and the patches supurated. It was boneless. It coiled and flexed. Then she touched a serpentine finger to a splayed hand jutting from the corpse mound. Putrefaction radiated from her hand. It spread throughout the hill of the dead. It ate into the bodies. They rotted. They dissolved. The mound trembled and began to settle. It turned to sludge beneath her, and she dropped into a mire of deliquescing flesh. Down and down, deep into a morass of bubbling muscle of bones that broke into jagged splinters, crumbled, and then jellied, deep into the stench of gray, the enveloping sea of gray, the grievous cost of gray. The sludge pressed into her nose, her mouth, down her throat. She took it in, but did not drown. She absorbed the gift of her people. Every body, every life, every dissolving scrap of flesh a sacrifice to her. The great dissolution poured into her. It fed her, filling her with the inevitability of decay. At last she sank to the ground. The mountain fell away, turning into a viscous liquid covering the plain and flowing to her oozing into her pores, coating her limbs with fragments of bone and pieces of curling skin. She began to walk towards the slope. She struck out her right arm as a viper attacks, and the decay that was now hers rushed forward. It was unseen and swift as the wind. It was unstoppable as a wave. For the first few seconds, as the rot climbed the slope to Baragano, the effect was subtle. There was little vegetation. Lichen turned to dust. Stone eroded and softened. Then the Grey Queen's gift touched the walls. The screams reached her a moment later. They began on the ramparts. Their volume grew. The Grey Queen listened to thousands of voices crying out as corruption took them. The choir was ragged. Soon it was wet, choking with rattling throats. She wondered if Herod was on the walls when her grasp came for him, or if he had listened to her and was with his family. She wondered if her admonition had been cruel. No matter wherever he was. He would know, in his final moments, that what he loved died as he did. The Grey Queen found her gauntlet. She slithered her arm back inside. 
the human voices fell silent. They were replaced by the thunder of collapsing structures as timber rotted to powder and mortar flaked away. The Grey Queen wound her way up the road, and when she reached the gates, they had fallen down, corroded with rust. The walls of Baragano stood, but they had crumbled under the attack of sudden centuries. The Grey Queen passed into the city. There were many piles of rubble. It was almost all stone. There were few traces of anything else. But she walked through the open spaces, her feet kicking up the dust. She was waiting now for the dawn, when she would see the full extent of her works. There would be some fragments of bones still, some faint physical memories of the bodies. Some of them would be very small. She had brought ruin, and she must own it. She would make herself look at the brittle remains of civilians. She would force herself to confront what she had done. She would think, not of the soldiers she had defeated, but of the innocents she had slaughtered. This was the most vital act of all. This knowledge, and the grief it brought, was what kept her from misusing her power. It was what kept her from reveling in the glory of decay. This was what she told herself. This was how she lied. Moral and physical decay embodied in one tortured soul. We attempted to make a comment about the current political season, but we'll leave that one up to you. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And please be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will get a fairy tale ending, and not in a good way. I'm going to go and climb back into bed and drink lots and lots of hot tea. There might be a drop of something in that tea, but I'm not telling. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.